Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Should I, should I stop smoking to protect your health? Yes. Well, no, no, but, but yes, second because, smoke. Yes, no, no, here's a good one. Should I, should I start working out so you can lose weight? That could be an inspiration, but that's not but, this, but your, your health is your responsibility? It's not mine. My health is my responsibility. Yes, because the COVID spread. No. It's the public side of COVID. No, no. That's, that's COVID not, is that's the flu. It's a modified flu. Just Can I ask you a question? Sure. What's the real issue? Freedom, brother. Freedom. freedom. Okay, Why yeah, let, freedom? let's talk about that. Yeah, what, the freedom what, that you have. This is a form of slavery, man. The problem is people are dying to us. <laughs> you I'm saying this is a form of slavery for we all of us. Slavery. Yeah, not, we we have to do slavery. It's not that kind of slavery yeah, though. It's, it's a little different. Us black people have to do slavery. Us black people have to do slavery. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and today we're speaking with Dr. Blaine Pope, who is a PhD and has worked in public health. Dr. Pope uh, came onto my radar because recently in Los Angeles, there's been a lot of anti-vaxxer, anti-mask protests that have been happening. And one in particular was a little bit um, upsetting and disturbing because it was being held at a grammar school. So we're talking about grammar school age kids now that they were trying to target. So uh, Dr. Pope happened to be there. He engaged with them in a really calm fashion, tried to explain uh, you know, some of the ins and outs of vaccines and viruses. And so I thought I'd invite him on the show today to have a conversation about some of the things that he was trying to get, a pro get across to these folks, because we all need to have an understanding if we want to do the, uh, make the right choices when it comes to protecting everybody, not just ourselves, not just our kids, but everybody, because we are all in this together. It is a public health crisis. So welcome, Dr. Pope. Well, let me just say by way of very brief background, uh, my wife had texted me that she had heard from somewhere else or seen somewhere else, perhaps online, I don't recall, that they were going to be in the neighborhood, like a block or two away, uh, but at a major intersection in our city of Santa Monica over here. And I was just like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Uh, I'll go pick up my daughter and, you know, I'll do my dad thing and we'll just come on home and I'll make her a peanut butter sandwich or some nachos or whatever, you know, whatever the usual thing is, right? And oh, so I go to pick her up, but she herself, I guess, having picked up some of mom's and dad's general intellectual curiosity about stuff, asked me if I would walk her over to just see these people kind of close up and just kind of get a feel for what they're all about. And I thought about it for a second and I'm like, well, they don't seem violent. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, why not? Um, so, yeah, we, I go with her, you know, holding hands and, you know, she's just kind of looking around and we kind of walk through the group a little bit. It's not a, a large group. And there's people on either side of the street. So we decided to walk to the other side of the street, right. just kind of looking around. And then she starts slowly asking two guys questions like... I forgot what the first question was, but in the general uh, vicinity of why are you doing this? Why, you know, this is a problem, don't you? And that's kind of how the conversation started. And I want to emphasize it really was a conversation. And I think, it, you know, to kind of cut to the quick, at least for me, one of the important things here is I wanted her to see 
that you can have conversations with people that, with whom you may disagree and some of whom you may vehemently disagree, but we can still have generally civil conversations. Indeed. Because while this is happening, you see, and can I call you Desiree? Is that yeah. you? Uh, oh, thank you. Okay, okay, this way. Um, but while we're there and we're just kind of checking out the scene, cars with parents and kids in them are like slowly or not so slowly driving by, hurling all kinds of invectives at them, pointing fingers, shouting things. And, you know, I'm just kind of looking at this and I'm looking at these people holding their signs. Again, people who I don't, we don't, we don't agree with. I thought, ah, it doesn't really have to go down like this. So... Let's just talk to them normally. And that, that's how it started. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's sometimes better to try to convince folks that their position isn't correct and move them over to our side. That's more beneficial for uh, everyone involved, I think. So I thought you were quite patient with them. I, I noticed one of them actually made the reference to your daughter that wearing a mask was akin to slavery. And her response was quite poignant. She said, we already went through that. You didn't. So- right. It, which I think is important. And I, I will say I saw the same group demonstrating at the Century City Mall and um, in grocery stores also. I've seen them in there. They've been traveling around. But they've also said to Jewish folks that it's the same thing as a Holocaust. I think both of these references are pretty offensive because it's, I mean, are you kidding me? This is a public health crisis and we're just asking you to do something to contribute to not spreading a virus. So um, that was really... a. A poignant moment, I think, for your daughter. Did did she say anything to you afterwards? How did that affect her? You know, it's interesting, Desiree. I think yeah, it's very interesting. I think it was more poignant for actually many of the people observing the scene from afar than it was for us in that moment. I mean, let's be honest. African Americans in United, modern United States of America, that's just Monday to us. That's not anything terribly unusual for us. I think what's happening is certain people now are beginning to realize, oh, that's jacked up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's like, I mean, it's really offensive. It's incredibly jacked up to compare these two things. I, I, and then you sort of wonder to yourself, wow, did this guy even think about what he was saying before he said it? I mean, wow. Well, I, well, my suspicion is, particularly based on what you've told me now about talking to Jews about it being equivalent to the Holocaust or African-Americans is equivalent to slavery, I suspect they've tailored their message for their audiences, so to speak, in order to elicit certain sets of responses. That that would be my guess. They probably don't see the problem with it. That's just sort of the path that they are on. Um, how do you think, right. why do you think they would target a grammar school? It's one thing, I think, to have a conversation with adults, but to actually go after kids seems to be like another level of kind of messed up too. Yeah, I think this this whole thing is what we call the sharp stick in the eye approach. Uh, yeah. Go for those things that will get you headlines and get you uh, uh, positions in the news cycle of that day or week or whatever. And once you've got that position in the news cycle, spread use that to then spread your message and it's one of those classic situations, I think, where you, you don't necessarily have to win, quote unquote, you just have to not lose. And by that, I mean, create doubt. Just create, well, hmm, that seems interesting. Maybe they have, they might have a point there. You know, just this kind of approach. I, that That's my sense of it. Mind you, 
I teach business strategy where I am now at uh, Cal State Northridge, uh, you know, furloughed because of COVID, but <laughs> hope to start back next school year. But I teach business strategy, so I, I'm kind of trained to think strategically and how things move and how right. sort of the, the middle size picture to the big picture and so on, how we move uh, down the line with an organization. So thinking strategically, like if I was in that group's shoes, which I'm glad I'm not, but if I was in that group's shoes, I would, uh, I'd probably do something like what they're doing. Right, right. Uh, just doubt. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the um, conversations you were actually having with these folks, because I think some of the anti-vaxxer uh, stuff that's out there is the same. We hear it over and over again, no matter what environment we're in. They're sort of all kind of putting the same arguments forth. Um, one of the main ones that I see them saying is that that the vaccines were approved through an emergency situation. So ergo, they're not as safe as we can expect them to be because they didn't go through the normal channels of approval. So what is your response to them when they say that sort of a thing? Well, these are vaccines that they've been working on well before the onset of COVID. Right. Uh, yes, there was rapid deployment uh, once COVID now is hitting the scene, uh, starting in, in very early uh, 2020. But these are, th these are not things that just same, suddenly came up in 2020 or December of 2019. They, they, these are vaccines that they've been working on for some time. But yes, having said that, they accelerated some of those processes. And now we know, oh, guess what? We can accelerate some of those processes and get very effective vaccines deployed. Uh, so again, e even based on what you said right there, it's the language of creating doubt. It's like, right. hmm, safe could they be? You know, it, you know this kind of thing. So, yeah. You're right, uh, the language you know, of, of creating doubt. We're going to assume there's a problem here. Let's find out. Let's let's find all the things that that is uh, like an antecedent bias. I already assume there's a problem. So let me find the stuff that right. just supports that. I'm just going to say, then you get the, hopefully, if you're on their side, if I can say it in those polemical terms, hopefully then you, you the, con the conversation constellates around how sure can we be? Uh, how safe is it? And then so everything be begins to move around that level of discussion rather than how effective it's been, what's been the history of vaccines before, what are their parallel vaccines that have worked, and yes, maybe where have they gone awry and what have we learned from that, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, uh, no, it, maybe it's not going to work so well, and here's why. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do see what you're saying um, completely because they shift from one point to the second point. Uh, in fact, right. in that respect, now they're using an mRNA uh, science, which is mes messenger RNA, right? So that's the new tech that they're using. And so the same folks that used to say that the live virus stuff was wrong, like no matter what what the form was, there was a problem, right? So now they're saying the mRNA yeah. thing is the problem, which you would want to say to them, well, wait, didn't you have a problem with live viruses before? Now we've switched to this other thing and you're going to, and now you're saying that's bad too, or like, what's the story here? So let me ask you this. You say they've been, they were sort of working on these things earlier, which my understanding is that is the case with the messenger RNA type technique. Um, what, so it, was this just them ramping up uh, that particular type of uh, formula? They were, I don't know if formula is the right word. Technique, I'm not sure how you would frame that. Um, or was it specifically related to like zootropic viruses like coronavirus? Or what, what's, this, what's the uh, background on that? I could, I, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn and give you technical details, which I may not be qualified to give That's you. That's fair. 
uh, I can speak more from, how do I say, a more generic public health perspective, and particularly the rhetoric, the ethics, and the politics of deploying these vaccines. Uh, you know, I, I might want to take a stab at it because I am intrigued by it myself, but I don't want to give you uh, bogus advice because no, that's I one of the I appreciate that. We have enough bogus, <laughs> bogus advice flying around, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Let, you know, let me not be guilty of the same thing of which I accuse others. <laughs> so. Right, right. So I was just curious about that. Um, so now from a public health perspective, we need to convince folks that herd immunity it basically matters. There's no such thing as a virus, a vaccine being 100% eff efficacious. I can never get that word out. That's just right. how it is, right? So it's really important that the majority of folks are vaccinated so that there's a, enough herd yeah. immunity built up where that whatever percentage we lose, it's okay, right? But I feel like we're up right. against a wall right now with that. Um, what are your thoughts there? I don't know if we're so much up against a wall, but there's definitely obstacles here. Okay. And my own impression, and again, let me back up just a couple of steps to just contextualize what I'm about to say. So I've worked in the management of health programs as well as other types of international relief and development programs in a number of different countries in Africa and the Middle East. So I, my experience is the management of people who are administering these programs. And in okay. the process of doing so, I, I become aware of, you know, potential roadblocks, bottlenecks, as well as success stories and all of that. So it's more from the man, program management side that, that I'm coming from. Um, having said that, it seems to me, it appears to me, based on that experience, that this is a crowd that is really trying to create a heavy level of doubt. And let me add that it's not just happening in this country. The, I don't know if you've seen some of research coming out of, or press coming out of the UK. Yeah. Uh, one, yeah, there's one in particular, Whoa. Dr. Nafiz, Nafiz Ahmed, based out of the UK, has done quite some research. And apparently, according to his line of uh, inquiry, a lot of the people coming out of the old Cambridge Analytica group have since uh, metastasized and, and spread out <laughs> to form other uh, children organizations from that parent organization and are essentially doing the same thing. So there's a lot of linkage to conservative politics, Brexit, uh, climate change denial. On that note, I should ask, just as a litmus test towards the end of our discussion uh, with my, my daughter, I just blurted out, uh, by the way, do you believe in climate change? No. Flat out. So I said, ah, okay, this gives me kind of a sense of what we're dealing with. Yeah. And I just told that, you know, as politely as I could talk, like in the tone that I'm talking to you now, I said, okay, guys, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I got to tell you, while we're both here in America, both speaking English, we live in different worlds. Because what I'm getting from you is just this kind of broad-based denial of what my daughter and I consider to be very basic realities. You don't seem to be just connected to that. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, I'm like looking at my watch and my iPhone thinking, oh, time to go soon anyway. Uh, you know, guys, what do I tell you? Good luck? I'm not sure that's appropriate, but be well. Take care of your health by whatever means you have at your disposal. But, you know, I have some concerns. <laughs> but yeah, take care. Yeah. You're kind of left on that note, you know. Yeah. Just, <laughs> um, right. But yeah, I say that to say that this there's been a global push 
And the U.S. is just one uh, whistle stop among many uh, on this global train here. No, and you're not mistaken. I think it's an interesting aspect of what you're discussing here as far as the Cambridge Cambridge Analytical troll farms and social media, the, the things that we're talking about. Everybody is is utilizing those at this point. Corporations are, political movements are, politicians right. are. It's really becoming difficult to find uh, what's, what's not being pushed in some sort of a way uh, that's false, astroturfing, right? But I right. also noted um, along those lines that a lot of these groups that are involved with these anti-mask um, uh, movements, these protests, are absolutely ex-Trump supporters or ex-Trump rally folks. These are It's the same right. group that we would see every Sunday at the Beverly Garden uh, Park right there in Beverly Hills, right? Oh, so right. This yes, is their yes. new thing. Yes, and I'll, I'll just say at a personal level, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued at the idea that you you use referring to them, you you lock on to this idea of not wearing a mask is sort of your new identity. <laughs> it's like I don't know, not wearing underwear or something. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I'm a patriot. I'm not wearing underwear. Uh, you know, where's that? <laughs> I don't Why? know. Driving it, they've really politicized a public health issue in a way that's so detrimental to society. It's really remarkable. I mean, can you imagine going back to a time of polio where somebody would have politicized that? Um, we well, are. let me say also though, if think as I, you know, as I'm talking to you now, I'm recalling also this, and you may re remember, this falls in line with the old Steve Bannon playbook yeah. to create as much chaos and confusion out there as you can, destroy traditional systems and structures, or at least degrade them as much as you can, so as to be able to take them over in the aftermath with, <laughs> in the wake of whatever is left from the, the flaming rubble. Um, so in some ways, this really fits with that and in fact, um, another snippet of the video that I appreciated is one of the protesters, they tried to catch you off guard with this smoking question. Like, he said, <laughs> should I quit smoking for your yes, health? You and you said yes. <laughs> yes. And I could just see, I could like see through his head where he's going, oh, darn, that didn't work. Oh, yeah, I'll good. get it. <laughs> Well, it was kind of funny because it was such a poor example for him to pick because, yes, cigarette smoke affects everybody around you. I don't think that's a controversial statement or, or up for debate. He picked the wrong thing. So then he sort of shifting to shifted to should I should I work out to change your eating habits or your uh, weight issues that you might have, which is a little bit more apropos because at least his eating doesn't affect your uh weight right so these are two but the smoking one was kind of funny to me i was like uh yeah bad example well there again it's, it's an idea of they're trying to determine the terrain on which the rhetorical fight will be waged so the idea is he, he chose a bogus example initially of individual initiative and how my individual health is not connected to your health but in fact he was dead wrong with that particular example so then he had, to, the, he had to backtrack and figure out another example that might work. And like, oh, yeah, if I work out at the gym, does that help you or affect you in some way? You know, uh, because that, in his mind, perhaps is, is a little more solid for the point he's trying to make. That what I do vis-a-vis -vis me and my health has got nothing to do with you and your health. And that relates to the concept I was trying to put across that you're basically deleting the public in public health. This is a team sport here. 
We have to do things. Look, I've had my vaccine already, but I have continued to wear masks when I go out. Why? Because it's very important that I not spray all over you if I'm meeting you in public or whoever you know that I'm meeting with. So for those same reasons, the idea of shedding of the virus on others, which I may be fine in dealing with with my body, but there may be others who are compromised or are otherwise vulnerable. Oh, yeah, you want to keep that. You want to keep the safety pr protocols in place until we reach a place where uh, there's exactly. more he herd immunity or whatever it is. So, exactly. yeah, you know, I've been vaccinated as well, and I continue to wear a mask in public, and I don't find a problem doing that. That's just, it's just what you are you should be doing, just, you know, out of respect for your fellow humans and also for yourself, because if we don't get this um, pandemic under control, all of our lives are going to continue on this path we're on right, right now, which is not a good path. So Yeah, yeah, it's very destructive. But, you know, I, how do I say? I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in, in what I call Blaine's Law of Opposites. Otherwise, the theory of the dialectic, that there are good things that can come out of bad things and bad things that can come out of good things. Uh, you know, the silver lining on the gray clouds. This is a chance to rethink how we have done many, many things now, because many things got halted or severely slowed down or degraded or shifted or what have you. And right. So it's a chance to look at them in a fresh perspective. That's, that's one way of sort of handling this, right? And another way of handling this is denial. And I think what we're dealing with when we talk about our, our people that are holding up these signs and placards and such, anti-mask, anti-vax, et cetera, if you go beneath the hood and look at the engine that's driving this, I think it's majority men who are dissatisfied and disaffected with how things have gone, and they see the world that has been constructed for them as somehow collapsing. They are trying to hold, put their fingers up against the wall to keep it from collapsing now, but they, they sense that it, it's collapsing. Right. And I think in this, there's a kind of desperation that gets created in this process that now causes folk to lash out in all directions. So anti-mask is just one of many things that they're hitting on in a sense of desperation because the world, whether we talk about U.S. relations with China and Russia or what's happening with race relations here in the United States, the world is shifting. And some people quite legitimately are struggling with that. They're having a hard time with that. And I, I think that's I what's- disagree. You know, it's interesting so, to me because, you know, not to change the subject, but, you, you, but you're correct on this. There's the world uh, around them is changing. I think also adding to that is the massive income inequality that the country has been not able That's to right. correct for years now. I mean, we have what, over 80% of the new wealth is going to the 1% continually. So all of these things do affect, we always know that fascism arises in times of, of uh, greater income inequality. So it's not, it's exactly. not based for you to, to be saying what you're saying at all, um, which is why I appreciated the way you were able to engage these guys because I was just like, wow. <laughs> That's important. And again, I, I wanna emphasize, you know, maybe it's me, but it was really not that hard in some ways. I just, I, I engaged the way I would engage my students in class. Right. Well, you know, that's the professor in you. But it is, I mean, as you saw some of the other cars of the parents going by, you know, that one guy drove by and was like, oh, I engaged you already last week. You're just stupid. Can you go away? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of where people, <laughs> they get to that right. point out of frustration, right? right? So um, um, you were calm and collected. So let me ask you this. Um, if you were going to give advice to anybody that wanted to engage somebody that was holding these um, anti-vaccine beliefs, anti-mass beliefs, what, what sort of tactics would you uh, advise and what sort of lines of argumentation do you think are the most effective? 
first and foremost, I guess, is how you hold yourself. Uh, understand that you probably have a better handle on the situation than, some, than someone who's going to deny that COVID-19 is a serious problem. So just be confident in that. And then, how do I say? Ask curious questions. Ask about them. Uh, treat them as human beings. Ask them, how did you come to this conclusion? I, I really, because I did ask that. How did you come to this? I, I'd like to know more about you, how, how you came around to this. And, and I, you know, we're judging all the time. I'm not one of those people who says don't judge. I think we're always judging in the back of our minds, but keep those judgments to yourself for the time being and just listen for a while. And, you know, that's basically what I did. I, not mentioned, I think, in, in any of the reports was for the first minute or so, it was just my daughter and these guys talking. And I just listened. And then I slowly began to sort of chime in. But initially, it was just her and her intellectual curiosity and me wanting to be there just to guide it and make sure they didn't get freaky or anything like that. Also, I, I should add, maybe it means something and maybe it doesn't. But just as an aside, she and I both study martial arts together. Yeah. Nice. So there's a certain confidence I get. We both do judo. Absolutely. Here in West LA. But uh, it, that engenders a certain kind of confidence in terms of just dealing with people. And a certain, not that it's a panacea, but it, it kind of frees you up to just be relaxed. And God forbid if something should go down, you know, we kind of know how to conduct ourselves, but not worried about that either, right? And so let's just talk. Let's, let's really try to engage in a discussion. And that's not to say it doesn't get heated, you know, maybe like the way I'm slightly raising my voice with you right now, but it's still a conversation. We can have a conversation. I think that's the most important thing. And I wanted her to be able to see that. But also you have the confidence of understanding some of the science, whereas uh, they don't. And I feel like a big part of the battle is breaking through that part. So a lot right. of these folks, I mean, it's sort of like the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? A lot of them don't have the education or um, have ever studied biology, they don't, but, and they just don't know enough to know that they are getting a lot of stuff wrong. So that can be frustrating when you're engaging with somebody that's convinced they're 100% right on something and they just don't understand the basic concepts. Too, so your daughter obviously has grown up in, a, in an environment where she's been exposed to science, understands a lot of these things probably, which also gives her confidence, no doubt. But for other folks, how, what do you, I mean, wh how do you handle that part? Yeah, I guess the part two of my response is a series of very structured but simple and direct questions. Okay. So, it, you know, without reconstructing a conversation fully, you know, I would hear things like, well, this is just a, 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 an opportunity to try to control people. And I'm like, okay, control. And why is that? Why, why would they want to control people? Well, because they're trying to, you know, develop this uh, fascist government here in... Uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I hear control. And so, and what would that lead to? What, what are we working to? So it's, take it step by step. So to get back to your question about, yeah, what sort of tactic you can use, I don't want to say it's like a lawyer in a court of law, but let's break this down piece by piece and see where it goes. What I found when I was engaging in that line of questioning was the pathway became circular and it was a narrow circle. They, they couldn't even take me on a distant circle to come back to their original point. It was like two points later or three points later, they come back to the thing they said, well, like I said before, it's all about control. Okay, right. but control towards what end? Well, you know, and yeah. So, and then often they would try to change the subject with another example of why 
the vaccine couldn't work or why masks don't work, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I was going to say, so you don't, you never really got to any of the harder science questions then um, in that particular situation. But I've actually had, I've seen some of these folks where they've just read enough online where they're like, well, it's mRNA. We don't know what that is. It could be like killing us or it could be, you know, this sort of thing. Right. Right. Uh, that really takes, how do I say, patience and the understanding that the conversation that I had, now today's Friday, that was Monday, that conversation may not percolate through that individual or those two individuals' heads for another two months, six months, a year. Do not anticipate that what comes out of your mouth in that moment is some kind of how light light bulbs above their head. Right. That's not just in the same way that my daughter was there and I want her to remember this five years and 10 years from now. So with those men who in many ways less educated than my daughter on right. certain issues uh, may not think of things until a year later, four years later, five years. And, you know, it's the long game here. I guess that's what I'm getting at. I, I'm not anticipating that they have uh, an epiphany <laughs> the night after they've spoken with Glenn Pope. Um, if, if, if at all, if at ev ever, uh, it may be months or years. Right. And that's, I just resigned myself for that. And just, in a way, that's kind of calming too, because I'm not expecting to somehow win points and they suddenly go, oh, wow, I see it now. You're right. Uh, I don't think that's happening because they've been given marching orders to kind of go out and proselytize us, yeah. we, the infidel, who do not get it, and they who do. So, yeah, I, I don't expect any massive turnaround. In some ways, as I was talking to them, I was really talking to my daughter. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a fair point. You know, it, so maybe it doesn't even need to get to that, really. They don't understand what these talking points even mean. They've been told them. So I guess really at the, the base problem here is just trust. They, they lack trust in the government. They lack trust in corporate America. And, you know, and some of this is not without merit. I understand why people right. have lost trust, lost faith. Uh, you know, a lot of them talk about bot science, whereas, you know, there used to be a time when you knew it was, you know, NIH funding going here. But now you have corporations like Monsanto or whoever else that are, you know, they want science to go a certain way. I would say the tobacco companies are a big example of that, what they did trying to... Um, mm -hmm try to divert from the fact that products cause cancer. So with a lot of these movements, there's always like a small grain of truth that exists and then it just gets blown out of proportion and goes into all these crazy areas. Uh, right. So I don't know how you fix that part. I think maybe um, calmly addressing them in the ways that you're talking about may be enough. But, you know, it's, it's tough because they might be already prone to believing conspiracy theories. And now there's something that's slightly truthful has given uh, birth to something much larger, right? And also, how do I say, as a society, to a certain extent, we're, we're laying in a bed that we have created as a society. That's true. Uh, Tuskegee experiment was a very real thing. Absolutely. So, you know, Friday among Americans in general, but in the African-American community in particular, to this day, there is still a lot of distrust. And I'll say initially, like a year ago, there was a lot of discussion with people I knew about, yeah, do, I, do we want to get a vaccine? I think we better wait and see how that goes. Right. Well, we just jump in that line. We often complain about not being allowed to be the first in line, but I think we don't need to be the first in that line. You know, there was that, there was that whole line of discussion because that, that legacy is still with us, yeah. right? 
talk less of other institutions, uh, you know, financial institutions and their misdeeds. Uh, taking, talking back to 2008, 2009, I think a lot of damage was done that still hasn't been discussed enough uh, with regard to bailing out large banks but not bailing out households. My own personal theory is that had there been better support of middle class and working class households, we wouldn't have known anything like a Donald Trump presidency. People were so blown out by that, that's when you get this kind of dispersal or bifurcation with people going to looking at democratic socialism as one possible alternative from mainstream capitalist democracy on the one hand to fascist uh, leanings and tendencies with the Trump abandoned group on the other. And I think now leaving people in, in what we call that center, now fighting two battles on each side of them to try to keep these centrifugal forces from flying apart and so on. Um, there's there's a, a generalized lack of trust in our institutions now. And I think it is the degradation of those, the internal decay and degradation of those institutions that have led to this lack of trust. So there's kind of this sociological ping pong effect that's taking place between, for example, what the big banks have done, getting bailed out, but leaving other people to literally to die in some instances, to be homeless, to be to feel abandoned, see other people who are abandoned and barely holding on to one's own home, et cetera, et cetera, not knowing what, who to trust, and a general degradation of, of our educational institutions. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, leading critical thinking skills now, et cetera. So, so many things happening together, uh, which leads me to believe that, yes, if, if we don't get those under control, there's going to be a, a steeper crisis that we're going Oh, I agree. I think it. I think we can definitely get more fascist than Donald Trump. Some people don't want to hear that, but I do think we can. Um, and I think a lot of that is by design, right? This is been. This is all of these things have benefited the platonomy, right? The one percent benefits by an a lesser educated population. And it wasn't that long ago, uh, Doctor Pope. You'll know because you're an academic that our UC system, our Cal State system, was fully funded by the state of California. It's down, I think the UC is down to 8% and CS is, I think, around 11. I, last I checked, it might be around there somewhere, but it's not exactly that. And, you know, when I was at UC, it was almost fully funded still by the state. My initial tuition there was $400 a quarter. And now- Mine was $700, $750 a quarter, I think something like that. But yes, um, yeah, I was at Berkeley. This, we, we definanced our education system while all these other things were going on. Uh, and again, this benefited, this is like the neoliberal privatization benefited the 1% and, and the other wealthy elites. And it, it, But eventually we're all going to pay for these things, right? And I think the anti-mask movement, as you um, were saying earlier, is, is part and parcel to these political things that are going on. So I think that's a salient point. Yeah, I, uh, this is, you know, I always try to put things in, in larger context if for no other reason than to explain them to myself and my spouse uh, in our numerous discussions over the kitchen table that we have on these, uh, on these issues. Um, because of her background, she's a physician but, and works in child psychiatry. And as she has told me, in order to be a good child psychiatrist, you also have to be a good adult psychiatrist. Yeah. You have to understand where the parents, parents are coming from. Mm -hmm. But having said that, she's been very good at, at sort of uh, schooling me on just one's internal motivational drives and the, the lack of insecurity and how, again, how men in particular tend to respond to insecurity versus women, et cetera, et cetera, which has been helpful for me. Whereas I come at more of sort of the macro level institutional forces 
that come to bear. But it really, human beings as such, we're, we're struggling with all of these things, right? right. Uh, men who have been displaced, if there's still an income, God willing, in the house, it's often the woman now who's the primary or sole bread earner. And that is psych psychologically and psychically devastating to a lot of men. Uh, I, based on what I've seen in other countries now here, my sense is during times of great stress, women are actually better at coping with these things. Oh, They're more adaptable, flexible than many of us men are. But so what then what's the feedback effect in terms of men and what, what, what do they retreat into or where do they go for some form of security or some form of explanation? I, I think if you look at even, you know, these right-wing neo-Nazi nationalist groups, there's a certain, how do I say, clubby atmosphere oh, there, 100%. right? That gives yeah. people a sense of security. If nothing else, we can I can rely on my brothers, so to speak, uh, for this sense of security. Uh, and, and it's almost like it doesn't matter <laughs> what the political factor is. They just want that sense of security. I mean, I've seen that with, read about this with men, militias down at the border, where it's like a hunting club. God forbid, but I mean, they're hunting other people, but it's like a club. We need break and, you know, where are we going for dinner after that? Or this kind of thing. But I, I think, and then the certain politicians and other influencers know this and then just key into this. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. That, that, that's really what I'm trying to say. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a multi-layered sandwich, if you will, of social factors that are coming to bear. And I think different forces are trying to g gain control over these. And this is what much of the political and economic battle is, is gaining control of this, this moving blob that no one seems to have direct control over, but everyone can, seems to be able to influence in some small way. That's yes. my very long answer to your short but it's, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love it. This is great. You're talking, you're speaking my language <laughs> because it's true. Um, um, let me ask you this. Do you think that the African-American community has been able to get past their fear of the vaccines, because I think what you were, you're talking about earlier, Tuskegee, this is this is a um, this is a very real fear. I don't fault anybody for feeling that way, given what had happened in the past. So is are, are folks starting to come around and see that that's not going to happen with the covid vaccine or is there still a lot of fear out there? Have you um, done any work in the community to, to have a gauge on that? Not recently, uh, but I can tell you just anecdotally, plus the reading I do and so on, that fear is endemic. It's always there because of how Black people have historically been treated, <laughs> continue to be treated in I this country. I was just going to say that. Yeah, that fear is always there. And, you know, the, the horror stories that come out of medicine and so on, mm -hmm. uh, right up to uh, Serena Williams and so on. That, that that's just that's just always there so the thing is to be very discerning and again this is where education experience and exposure is key are they going to really get us this time in this way <laughs> today uh, i would assert probably not as a result of vaccines this time black people you can probably be safe uh, there are still other things, obviously, you know, uh, endemic police brutality and so on yeah, and so forth. Yeah, I was going to say, the, if, if the, the vaccine's not going to get you, but the cops likely might. <laughs> oh. I don't think that's a crazy statement. We've been covering police brutality all week on Status Coup, so. Right. So 
but to answer your question, it's almost a yes and no. I mean, yes, we're, we're still still concerned. Let's just say there's a healthy skepticism that's in the African-American community. By the same token, I think it's incumbent upon many of our thought leaders, influencers, right down to doctors, nurses, preachers, uh, et cetera, athletes to make their voices heard to try to influence people in a positive direction vis-a-vis -vis vaccines and so on. But it hasn't been without its challenges. Uh, you've probably heard of stories here in South LA, certain churches having organized themselves and gotten set up to do massive vaccines with among their parishioners, find that there's people from uh, Caucasians from the north side of LA County coming into their <laughs> community in South LA yeah. to because that's where they could get vaccines and so on. So there's there's a lot of factors there. Like, all right, where where are the black folks who are supposed to be in this black church who are supposed to be getting these vaccines? Uh, as you look around early on in the process, that wasn't happening. So uh, again, it, it's, in other words, I don't have a simple answer to your yeah, question. Well, there's, right? there's a lot. I don't think there is one. And I think there, the, the fear is uh, very much justified. To me, that story is much more justifiable than some of these Trump folks. You know, I mean, at least there's a, a valid reason for feeling this way. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yes. Well, you know, there's this concept that if you've been in a privileged position for so long, as so much of white America has, then the demand for equality by others begins to feel itself like a type of oppression. Yeah, which is so ridiculous. But yeah, you, I mean, you listen uh, to the language that these guys use. I mean, the fact that he had the audacity to say to your daughter uh, that it was like slavery was. I, I mean, I couldn't believe he said that. I was like. Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I, I want to emphasize that's not unusual <laughs> by a long no, shot, I know. right? I mean, you think you'd it's not unusual. It's not that, that was just that happened to be Monday. That's all. Yeah. It's, that's, that is what that is. But yeah, anyone who's black can tell you any given month or a few times a year, you're going to hear some craziness where you work or at the bus stop or. Right. As, as unusual as it is, it's still shocking to me, though, because I just don't, I just kind of go, really? And, Probably. you know, and I guess I would say to those who are shocked, including yourself, okay, sit with that shock, but understand we're getting shocked every week with, <laughs> with that kind of thing. You know, not literally every week, but very oh, frequently yeah. throughout I mean, the course. Probably. Right? So, it wouldn't yeah, surprise me that, if this happened once or twice a week because that's how clueless, I, I mean, and the, you know, and also, and again, like with the Holocaust thing, I'm like wearing masks is like the Holocaust. You're saying that to somebody that might've possibly right. had members of their family killed in a genocide. What are you thinking? Yeah, I think, well, I think, I think they're thinking that's by design. That's their talking point. Because what they want to do then, they would like nothing better. And I mentioned this to my wife the other day. And this is something I just do all the time. My body language is key. Black dude, kind of burly. If I raise my hands up like this above my eye line, that's potential hostility. But if I keep my hands in what I call the preacher pose, clasped, occasionally open them up as if beckoning, then clasp them again, that's a little bit more less threatening, shall we say, more soothing. So the idea is to, to compose oneself and just engage with the issues. Mm -hmm. Don't allow yourself to be manipulated into getting upset because that's what they want for their cameras so they can see black dude with 
<laughs> hand up. Right. And it's interesting that you're talking to me about how you have to be careful about your posture, the way you speak. Like these are things that white people never have to consider. And it's remarkable to me that when I watched these videos, it never occurred to me that that was part of your thought process or that it would even have to be part of your thought process, right? But you're telling me this and it's like, damn, you know what? That that is a big difference between white privilege and not having it because- Every day, every single day. Hey, did you, what did you study philosophy or something? Um. Worked in Africa and the Middle East for a number of years. And then effectively after that, I wanted to study what I was seeing in Africa and the Middle East, wow. and then came back to get a graduate degree at a small institution called Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara, and looked at the political economy of uh, petroleum use and its impact on oh, debt. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, so, do you, I'd be interested to know about your thoughts on bioethics. Like, I. Uh, in regards, I don't know how much time you spend in Africa, but a lot of times they take phase three trials there because it's cheaper. But yes. I think there's a lot of ethical problems with this. Uh, you know, not just the obvious ones like poverty, whatever, but also you've got uh, language barriers that you're asking somebody to sign off on a consent form they might not understand, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that's something that's problematic? Oh. It can be. Uh, but again, there's a lot there, there's a lot that goes into that, and there has to be a lot of clarifying details. For example, we were uh, procuring medicines for river blindness, onchocerciasis, procuring uh, pharmaceutical products that were not expired, but they were close to expiration, like maybe I don't know three to six months out or something. Uh, but as a result, far far cheaper. So what do you do? You that is a great to, question. Wow. Right? Because what we're talking about usually is not absolutes of, oh, this situation is cool and this situation is totally messed up. It's often in that middle gray area where there's a little bit of good mixed up with a little bit of bad. And depending on how the ball falls that way, yeah. <laughs> going, right? <laughs> so wow. uh, wow. if you get the cheaper one that's closer to expiration, you have more money to spend in your pro- in project either to buy more right. or to do other services that the people could use. Yeah. Or you could do one that's, you know, three years out from expiration, but maybe four times the cost or whatever, leaving very little or comparatively little to do other things. What do you do? And it doesn't stop there. No, it doesn't, does it. <laughs> Let's suppose we have did our, our little project, our little hypothetical project here has decided to go with that cheaper alternative. <clears throat> Where is it going to? I was in Nigeria when this was happening. Right. You know, if you know Nigeria or Lagos, Nigeria in particular, it's basically like Miami, third yeah. world Miami, yeah. flat, sprawling, huge megalopolis and so on, bigger than some countries in terms of population. Mm-hmm. Um, it, all right, and let's say it gets into port on time, shipped from the East Coast of the United States, but it's been on this sh- ship now for maybe two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. Now it's in port. Takes a little time to get it out of port. That's right. Hot, dark. It'd be like a little oven in there, accelerating the, the, the degeneration of these pharmaceutical products. Yeah. Oh, but if you talk to the right people, you 
can get it out for you a little faster if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I do. <laughs> uh, again, so that's another little point right there. What to do. What to do. I do. say bribe the guy and get the medicine out, but, you know, I hear what you're right. saying. It's like Sometimes you, you the can be... choice isn't the legal one. Aha. Okay? Uh-huh. That, that's really what I was coming to. You know, you can sit on your, your high horse and not get a dang thing done. Or you could do probably what you need to do and get something done. And we don't have to think about it a lot, if you know what I mean. I so, know what you mean. I, yeah, so it's all these kinds of issues that I found that we, people would often be confronted with in the field just to do their job, mm. to get the, the pharmaceutical products out of port on truck, usually, to go up country to the village to be distributed to the people who, who needed it there. Yeah, and yet... You, you, and at, at the, now the U.S. government has relaxed its position on this. They basically are now have come to a position of, you know, unless it's some fantastic amount of millions of dollars worth of commodity, don't ask, don't tell. We have a budget line item that essentially is other, other, <laughs> other yeah. expenses. Is that driven by political greed, do you think? Or is that for reasons other? I'm wondering if that was lot business, the business lobby saying we'd like to be able to do this and it's driven by more greed than it is anything else or no? Like, what are your thoughts? Well, the U.S. government will, would procure these items either as tax breaks for those companies okay. or procure them at, at discount. So items that may be soon get destroyed anyway because they can no longer sell them. So it's a way of either minimizing, well, basically minimizing losses or maybe some modest profit, eking out some modest profit where they otherwise wouldn't be able. So oh, that, well, that's, that, that's how I, yeah, that, that's how I interpret that. And mind you now, what the scenario I've given you is one of the more relatively benign scenarios, right? There have been less than benign scenarios. On the international side, I don't know if you remember the infamous Dalkin Shield uh, IUDs that, oh. Yeah. Yeah, so, um. Yeah, so this is kind of like what I did as a part of what I did. And it was not just in health either, but also straight up emergency relief when there's crises, um, kind of like what we see, you know, pick a country, northern Ethiopia now, Colombia now, uh, where the civil unrest can sometimes <clears throat> be so intense that food supplies get disrupted and have to set up temporary camps to just house the refugees and internally displaced people that are caught up, you know, otherwise average people caught up in very bad situations. Uh, Dr. Pope, where can people follow you on Twitter if they want to follow you? Uh, Dr. Capital D, lowercase r, underscore Blaine, B-L-A-I-N-E. That's on Twitter. Um, Excellent. Dr. Blaine, Dr. underscore Blaine. Yeah, Blaine Pope on Twitter. Thank you. It was a pleasure and look forward to doing it again, perhaps sometime. Oh, I'd love to.